Decades ago, Richard Bernstein opened Time Magazine's first bureau in Beijing. He was later New York Times bureau chief at the UN, in Paris, and in Berlin. He spent a few years as the Times national cultural correspondent and as a New York Times book critic. He's also the author of a list of incisive books, including on China and France. I'd been meaning to catch up with him for some time when I read a provocative op-ed he recently wrote for the Wall Street Journal. It's about what he calls the Midway Measures Trap. That's when the U.S. is caught between two contradictory imperatives, to respond to a threat, but also to limit the response so as to contain costs and limit risks. The result is often mission failure, and that has consequences. He's with us today to discuss not going the distance, not sticking to our guns, being in for a penny, but not a pound, and other topics. I'm Cliff May, and I'm pleased you're in this virtual room with us here on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the We game. are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. You could see mass destruction within Israel as a result of this precision project that Iran has undertaken. So, Richard, let's start with just a little bit about you. And and look, in full disclosure, we've known each other for a long time. You know, if, if memory serves, and sometimes it doesn't, let me be honest, we sat next to each other on the Metro desk at the New York Times. And doing doing a, a stint as a Metro or city reporter was necessary back then, a kind of a rite of passage before getting an assignment overseas. And at that point, you'd already been a distinguished foreign correspondent, and I'd been an undistinguished foreign correspondent, but I remember you didn't hold that against me. <laughs> well, uh, I guess I, I, I don't agree with your way of putting that. I think, you know, <laughs> you overdid it on the modesty side, uh, Cliff. But, uh, but yeah, uh, other than that uh, point, uh, uh, my memory corresponds to yours about our time sitting next to each other on the Metro desk, you know. And you don't have to respond to this, but I think the Times was a a much better newspaper than than it than it is now. I was very proud to be there at that at that time, and I'm I'm chagrined at a lot of the things, a lot of what the Times has become. Not every reporter by any means, but but a, but a lot of things. Well, you know that I agree with you on that point All as right. well. Yeah. All right. Also, one more thing about you. you grew up on a poultry farm. Now, did you practice conjugating Mandarin verbs while feeding the chickens so you'd be able to come one of the first American correspondents in communist China? Yeah. Um, yes, I, I conjugate. <laughs> actually, no, of course. I, I, uh, actually, just to, uh, you know, to be kind of a little bit academic about it, uh, Chinese verbs don't conjugate. <laughs> uh, I knew I, I, I was thinking declensions, <laughs> yeah. conjugations. No. I kind of took a guess there. Yeah. Right. I couldn't have been conjugating Chinese verbs while collecting eggs, um, even if I had wanted to. No, I, I actually started studying Chinese uh, in graduate school. Uh, I was, um, I, I applied for a, a government program, actually, uh, 
It was, it was called the National Defense Education Act, and it paid for people to study uh, less known languages like Chinese, Japanese, Arabic, uh, Swahili, uh, and there are languages that the country needed people to know uh, for our national, in our national interest. And I was able to get into Harvard on one of those programs. And I did a master's degree in, in East Asian area studies and half the program was, was the Chinese language. But then I went to, you know, then I went into a PhD program after that in something called history in East Asian languages. I ended up uh, spending um, about a year and a half on Taiwan which is actually where I became a journalist. I became the stringer for the Washington Post way back in 1972. Not, well, no, 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 no. It was 71, 72. Mm. Um, and that, you know, so that was sort of the combination of Chinese and being a stringer for the Washington Post is what led me to, a, you know, a couple few years later, opening the Time Magazine Bureau in Beijing. Two things. First, and, and you were interested in China and learning Chinese just, purely out of curiosity or was there anything more to it than that? Uh, no, there was more to it than that. Actually, in a, in a way it goes back to the, to the chicken farm because my, my father, um, you know, was kind of a, uh, an old democratic leftist, sort of a democratic socialist, uh, who had on his shelf a bunch of books about China, like, uh, Edgar Snow's Red Edgar Star, Snow. but, uh, Israel Epstein's The Unfinished Revolution in China, and I was in college uh, during the during the late sixties when you know kind of revolution was in the air. Uh, there was a student fashion for for Maoism. Uh, I got over that very quickly, but I did mm. engage in that illusion for a while. Uh, so so yeah, even as a even as a child growing up, uh, um, I was sort of interested in China from a political standpoint. And then, you know, I, I kind of skipped over a bunch of years. But then later, when China became big in the news with the Cultural Revolution and, the, uh, and all that, it seemed to me that people who knew about China would have a future. Uh, and when I, you know, and then this government program kind of coincided perfectly with, you know, the, with the, my the timing, you know, I graduated from college, I had to figure out what I was going to do. So it all kind of came together in that way. Mm, right, right, right. We, and who, who were there foreign, any American foreign correspondents in, they were in Hong Kong, but in Beijing, of course, Hong Kong was a British colony then and a lot freer than it is now. Were there, were you the first or just the first for Time Magazine? Who'd been there earlier? Uh, no, there were no American uh, correspondents based in China. Uh, um, until the United States and China formally recognized each other diplomatically. And that happened at the end of 1978. So then mm. in 1979, you remember uh, Deng Xiaoping, the paramount leader of China at the time, came to the United States on a visit that got a tremendous amount of coverage. I actually covered that visit for, for Time magazine because I was in Washington for a brief period then. And then at the end of 1979, I was able to go to China. The uh, Time magazine had not had a bureau on mainland China since uh, the late 1940s during the during the, the Civil War. Did China. anybody else? Did the New York Times, did the uh, Washington Post, did anybody else have a Beijing bureau? You know, short-term visits of a week or two visits or something, mm. something like that. Uh, no, no, no uh, 
only the, the Canadians, uh, the Toronto Golden Mail, uh, mm, sure. had a bureau in Beijing. Um, and the bureau chief then for the Toronto Golden Mail was Ross Monroe, who right. was later my co-author on our book, uh, The Coming Conflict with China. So I got to know him uh, way back. That was in the mid-70s when I was living in Hong Kong as a, as a so-called China watcher. Um, but when I got to them, I mean, a few of a few of the journalists got in a little bit before t- the Newsweeklies got in. Uh, they let in the wire services first, mm. then the New York Times, the Washington Post, the LA Times. I think got in, uh, and then about three months after that, they uh, they let in Time, Newsweek, uh, and so that was when I went very early 1980. And, and this is a, this could be a long question and answer, but I'll. You went in, you must have been very excited to be there. I mean, to be a young foreign correspondent in a place that you, you, you know, very few people were before. Um, what was it like initially and how long did it take you to become sort of disillusioned with uh, with Chinese communism? It wasn't really, my disillusionment actually came before that. Um, part, of, part of it was just being in graduate school uh, and seeing the... Uh, what I found to be a kind of group think about, about Maoism and the failure to learn the lessons of uh, kind of intellectual fellow traveling during the Stalin period. It even kind of, I don't really want to get into this, but it even goes back to, in a way, my, my father's bookshelf, because mm. my father uh, uh, became disillusioned with the Soviet Union because mm. of Stalinism. And then, I don't know, a generation later, uh, I became disillusioned with Maoism for some of the same reasons. But the key uh, event actually was several years before that, in 1972. Uh, remember, uh, Kissinger and Nixon went on the great breakthrough visit to China in uh, February 1972. Mm. And that was when the process of normalization began, although actual formal relations weren't established until seven years later. Uh, under Carter. But after the Nixon-Kissinger trip, the Chinese government was looking for an American group to invite to China, and they invited a group of of, uh, students and young faculty that I belonged to. And by then, I was living on Taiwan, studying Chinese and doing articles for the Washington Post, but I was able to go on this trip to mainland China, went to Hong Kong, we crossed over the border into mainland China. This was in March and April. We were five weeks in China, traveled all over the country. It was an amazing trip, actually, uh, from a geographical standpoint. And it made a, uh, it had a lasting impact on me. Uh, I mean, I went in, I cried across the border, already a little bit skeptical about the claims that were being made for Maoism, but it took me all of about, 10 hours mm. to become a dedicated, lifelong anti-communist. Uh, <laughs> my experience in China had exactly the reverse effect from what the Chinese uh, were expecting us. They, they invited us students, you know, in order to impress us with the greatness of the, of the revolution and the progress it was making uh, and, you know, kind of the new society that it was creating. Uh, and instead, um, and, and it worked for some of us, uh, mm. Our group. Mm. Uh, but for me, it had the reverse effect. I found I found what I saw in China absolutely appalling: the 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 worship of Mao, the cult of the personality, the fear that you could see in the eyes of ordinary people when they spoke to you, 
the fear that they would say the wrong thing uh, and that they would be they would be punished for it. Um, the kind of control and supervision uh, that was that was evident, and and the and the poverty. Uh, I mean, you know, the the propaganda images were at such variance with the reality that you could see on the streets and in the markets. Um, and I had been coming; I had come from Taiwan, you know, which at the time was under the nationalists. So the nationalists were still sort of the pretend, you know, the government of mainland China in exile. Uh, you know, still with the slogan, you know, return to the mainland, recover the mainland. Uh, and Taiwan was also an authoritarian regime under Chiang Kai-shek was still, was still alive at the time. But, you, but uh, you, I, I kind of thought, you know, just show some television images of, a, of an ordinary fruit and vegetable market on Taiwan to people on the mainland, and they would overthrow the communist regime instantly because things were just so much better on Taiwan uh, than they were on the mainland. Um, So, so yeah, I mean, all of those things sort of combined to make me uh, uh, very skeptical. So when I got to China uh, in early 1980, um, I actually saw it as my mission to, to reveal uh, what I had seen to be the truth about about trying to be skeptical already of government claims, uh, <clears throat> to try to show, you know, what a you know what a terrible dictatorship it was. I wasn't alone in that. Um, <clears throat> there was actually a kind of a funny split uh, among people who had studied China. Many of the journalists who went to China at that time, we, we sort of knew each other because we were all in Hong Kong at the same time. And before that, some of us had actually been in, in, in graduate school together. Fox Butterfield of the New York Times, sure. so Linda Matthews and Jay Matthews of the LA Times and Washington Post, respectively. All four of us had actually been at Harvard together. And in Hong Kong, we had all, I think, to varying degrees, become skeptical of the uh, of the propaganda as China watchers, uh, and we were and we were different in that sense from what we used to call the, the you know the two week wonders uh, people mm. who would be invited to China for a week or two weeks or maybe three weeks, and they would come back and they would write these uh, uh, rhapsodic articles about uh, the glories of China and how you know what tremendous progress China had made and how they were refashioning relations among human beings and eliminating selfishness from the human heart in favor of what they call spiritual incentives. There was just a lot of, of really kind of uh, wishful rose colored nonsense being written about China by people who didn't really know very much about the country. And I think that was in all of us who later went to China as um resident correspondents already had a sense of uh, uh of the, of the reality so you know when my first book was uh published in 1982 and it came out around the same time as fox butterfield's uh, uh book on china both of us you know did kind of empty your notebook uh, operations on on china they were published within weeks of each other and they were it was taken you know there was a moment in our time long forgotten maybe even by Euclid. Uh, when you know Bernstein and Butterfield had kind of run counter to the you know the standard image of China that we were revising 
the image of China and the view of China that had prevailed up until then in the United States and in much of the world. Um, tell me also quickly that recently China broke what I would consider to be its treaty obligation to maintain a separate system in Hong Kong after the British returned to, returned Hong Kong formally to China. Um, my response was kind of you know outrage and, and wish to and, and and disappointment that the international community, as we say, including but wasn't more forceful about. The, about imposing consequences for for what China is now in the process of doing to the people of Hong Kong in terms of stripping them uh, of their rights. Was that your response? Your kind of your reaction to? Uh, in the immediate sense, yes. Um, I've been heartened a little bit by some of the response that's come more recently. I mean, just even at the recent G seven and uh, NATO meetings that were attended by Australia, Japan, and South Korea. Uh, um, that, uh, you know, there's, there's definitely a growing awareness of, uh, of the China, what we call euphemistically the China challenge. And uh, I think in a sense, China is paying for its crackdown. It's a violation of its obligations uh, to maintain two separate systems for 50 years in Hong Kong. You know, I mean, they have so blatantly revealed uh, their... Uh, autocratic nature uh, in Hong Kong, uh, you know the the arrests, uh, the, the the closing down of, uh, of of newspapers, of any kind of independent media, uh, the uh, the arrests of leg- of people who were elected to the uh, uh, to the Hong Kong legislature, um, and heroes like has- Jimmy Li- like Jimmy Lai. Let me just say his name because he's the publisher of uh, apple newspapers the guy's a billionaire he could be you know drinking daiquiris on a, on a beach somewhere in the mediterranean instead he's in jail because he insisted on fighting for the rights of the people of hong kong and he's sacrificing himself for that and he's not enough in the news anymore because when you go to jail it's pretty hard to be so i just want to i've met him and you probably have and i just wanted to, to mention him yeah i met him years ago and and uh I absolutely agree. Uh, he could be, you know, just some rich guy on a yacht. Uh, but, you know, not only was he arrested, but I think eight or nine of yeah. his editors at the Apple Daily were also arrested. The paper was closed down. It was the most popular Chinese language uh, newspaper in uh, in Hong Kong. It, it was closed down. Something I, I forgot the number, but it was something like 50 police uh, invaded the office, closed it down, dragged them away. Um so yes, I, I I I think it's I think it's important also that that the that names like Jimmy Lai continue to be named. I think you know one of the one of the, the things that China gets away with is a kind of public forgetfulness of uh, of the outrages that it that it perpetrates. So you know you'll get coverage for a day or two, uh, and then everybody forgets about it. And the names of the people who are in prison, the, the human rights lawyers. Uh, the Elam uh, uh, Toti is a name that I would also like to keep in the public record. He's the Uyghur economist mm. who was imprisoned, uh, I can't remember how many years ago, got a sentence of life in prison for what was his crime. His crime was writing some scholarly articles uh, in which he maintained that, the, uh, that ethnic Chinese were benefiting uh, more from uh, in Xinjiang than uh, the, than the uh, ethnic Uyghurs were, 
and he was calling for reforms in the treatment of of ethnic Uyghurs. Uh, and for that, you know, he was a distinguished economist, well known in the international world. He's in jail for life, and he's forgotten. Let's face it; he's like he's forgotten. Nobody, nobody remembers him anymore. You know, there were articles for a few days, and every once in a while, something comes up. The human right, I think the, the European Human Rights Commission gave him an award uh, a year or so ago. Uh, but you know, no. by and large, you know, these these uh, atrocities kind of. They get away with them because the world can't focus on them over any length of time. Or won't. I mean, the UN Human Rights Commission uh, Council could do that if it if, the, if it wanted to, but it's it's much too busy uh, uh, complaining that there may be uh, Jews living in the Judean hills or in the Jewish quarter of uh, Jerusalem. That's uh, that's the kind of outrage that the UN uh, yes, absolutely, Human and Rights also, Council worries about. I mean, the Chinese uh, have disproportionate influence in the human rights. Yes. I forgot what it's called now, Human Rights Council. Council, yeah, it's council. It used to be commissioned. I get, I forget from time to time. And they're not very different. It was, the latter was supposed, the current was supposed to be a reform effort on the failure of the latter, but it's, it's, it's essentially identical. And not just there. There's the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the World Health Organization. There are numerous organizations at the UN where the Chinese are exercising their influence and sort of hijacking and subverting. And actually, FDD is doing a lot of work on that, both to re- reveal it and try and advise that administrations to do something about it, which administrations are, have been reluctant to do. I, I want to come back to China, but let's first talk a little bit about the midway measures trap, this, this op-ed you wrote that I thought was very incisive and really, um, you put your finger on, on a problem that I don't think others have. Why, why don't you explain the concept a bit more fully than I managed to do in my my introduction? Sure. Um it's actually something that's been in my mind for a long time, uh, even you know going back to the Vietnam War, uh, and um, but you know some of the other American engagements uh, overseas that turned into embarrassing um, misadventures: uh, the Somalia, the brief Somalia intervention, uh, Lebanon in the in the early 1980s, uh, where we were there for a short time, then we withdrew after. The bombing of the Marine Barracks uh, in 1983, of course, Afghanistan. Uh, that it, it, it's always struck me that in our foreign policy uh, and in our democratic system, uh, administrations are compelled to respond to some kind of crisis by getting involved. Uh, and then two things happen after that involvement. One, uh, the involvement turns out to be more difficult and more costly than we envisioned. And another constituency, another political constituency emerges that wants us to get out. And so, you know, I didn't really make this, I didn't emphasize this point in, the, in my Wall Street Journal piece, but uh, it's also the political, uh, the, the kind of contrasting political imperatives uh, the, there's a constituency that that pushes for engagement and involvement, and there's a constituency that pushes against it. And so administrations try to, to steer a kind of middle course between those two constituencies. And that uh, that combined with the uh, the actual difficulties and loss and costs of these engagement produces what I call the, uh, the midway measures trap. Uh, that we we feel compelled to do something, but then we also feel not compelled to do 
what we really need to do in order to fully achieve our objectives. And I was, I was wondering whether Ukraine is mm -hmm. going to be a kind of variation on that theme in the sense that we very quickly got engaged in Ukraine. Uh, and, I, and I agree with that, by the way. I, I want us, I wanted us as a citizen, I wanted us to be engaged in Ukraine to provide the Ukrainians with the means to defend themselves against this, uh, this uh, brutality uh, on the part of the Russians. Um, but then, uh, and, and we were very successful. And by the way, part of the Midway Measures phenomenon is that often the initial measures meet with some success. Mm -hmm. uh, so, for example, uh, you know, you'll have a kind of mission accomplished uh, uh, scenario, you know, the president in his uh, flight jacket, you know, landing on an aircraft carrier and declaring that we've won in Iraq. Right. Uh, then it turns out that we actually haven't won in Iraq. Uh, and then time goes by and, uh, you know, then the pressure to withdraw from the country increases because of the cost, which creates this this opposing political constituency. Uh, so, so we have some initial success, uh, as we did in Iraq, as we did in Afghanistan, mm -hmm. and now as we did in Ukraine, uh, we prevented our our arms and you know the arms of other countries, and of course Ukrainian courage and willingness to fight and and the skill of the Ukrainians. We can't leave. Obviously, that's a very crucial part of the uh, of the picture uh, that we're supporting a, a a government that wants to fight and that is willing to fight as opposed to the South Vietnamese government, which wasn't willing to fight. Um, and uh, they had an, a, a great initial success uh, in preventing the takeover of the country and basically pushing the Russian, defeating the Russian attempt to seize Kiev. And then the Russians adapted by concentrating on the South and on the East and um, and then I, you know, with Russian success, I was I was just I was personally frustrated by the slowness of the administration to provide longer range weapons and especially the uh, um, the, the multiple launch rocket systems that Ukraine said it needed and that we agreed it needed. The Russians appeared to start to be winning. Uh, in eastern Ukraine, and I was wondering, you know, a, 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 now an opposing constituency is going to emerge. It's going to say, "Well, <clears throat> Ukraine," and and it has some interesting and and points that we have to take into account. One, as uh, Rubio said the other day, we haven't clarified what the end game in in, in Ukraine is. Is this just a kind of everlasting, another endless war? I mean, fortunately, American troops are not involved. We're not losing lives. Uh, but, you know, we're expending treasure and there's no end in sight. Uh, secondly, is Ukraine really, is the defense of Ukraine really a vital American interest? Uh, I think, you know, there's a good question uh, to be raised about that. Uh, so and so there's, there's this counter argument that's emerging that may, in the end, lead the United States not to do enough to an, you know, to to meet the at least the, the the basic objective of preventing the Russians from winning this war, whatever that actually means on the ground. Right. I, I think I think that's right. A few comments, some of which you may want to quibble with. I mean, one is this: you won't if you know if Putin had a sense of this, the idea of this midway measures trap. He he, he might well have said to himself, "Look, 
I hope to take the country in three days, but if I don't, then I just need a long drawn out war of attrition. I won't weaken. I won't give up. The Americans will, just a matter of time. The Europeans, of course, will, especially because they want they want my energy. They want to pretend that they're shifting over to wind and sun and all that. They want my oil. They want my gas. They even want my coal, and they're going to need it pretty soon. So it's just a matter of time, and I and I win this. And that would not be a that would be a, a pretty savvy analysis by him. The other thing is, I Mar- we mentioned Marco Rubio, and I. Look, there are people like Tucker Carlson who thinks it's, who is a, who's against this. There are groups like the Quincy Institute, which is supported by George Soros on the left and Charles Koch on the right. And there, I would call them isolationists. That's not the term they prefer. They don't. They, they they're they're happy to see Putin win, evidently. Um, but I was a little disturbed with Marco Rubio saying in an op-ed that um, we cannot afford an endless undefined commitment. Well, it's good to define it, but this idea of exit strategies that's become popular, I'm very wary about. We fought World War II and decided we needed to keep troops in Europe for some time, and indeed, those troops are still there. My son happens to be one of them. We fought in the, we fought in the Pacific. Uh, we still have troops in Japan. We fought what might be considered an example of what you're talking about in the Korean War. We left the North in power. We protected the South, and we're still protecting the South. I think the last count I saw, we had 28,000 troops in South Korea. Um, that's a pretty much an endless commitment. Is it undefined? No. The definition is we're not going to let the Kim dynasty take over the entire peninsula and then do whatever it wants to do after that. That's our commitment. So we have these commitments, and then I and and then here's where I'm, I might quarrel with you in terms of it's not that Ukraine is a vital interest. It's not that we're doing this altruistically, but we do have an interest, or several. One is American credibility. There was something called the Budapest Memorandum. We signed it. Russia signed it. The Ukrainians gave up their nuclear weapons in exchange for a promise that their territorial integrity and sovereignty would be respected. It's not being. It wasn't a treaty, but you know, we put our name on it. Also, I think the very existence of international law and international norms is in question. If a neo-imperialist bully such as Putin can swallow a smaller neighboring nation with impunity, well, we're in a very different world than the one I think most of us thought we were in, much more like the 19th century than what the 20th first century was supposed to be. It kind of clears the path for China to swallow Taiwan, which it considers a rogue province, maybe other small Asian nations that it thinks should be within its realm. The theocrats in Tehran, especially if they become nuclear armed, and I think the Iran deal does nothing to stop that. I'm not even sure it delays it, maybe. Uh, he'll, of course, Tehran will attempt to do the same thing in the, in the Middle East. So I do think there's a lot to think about here before we get tired and give up. And the other thing I would just mention, then I'll shut up for a bit, is there is no good reason to think that Putin, if he does get to take over all or even a a large chunk uh, of Ukraine, will say, okay, I'm satisfied. I've completed my life's mission. I can now go back to my dacha and enjoy myself. No, I think he'll look to the rest of the Russian empire that he wants to reestablish. And if I were he, or if I'm thinking like him, I'd say I'll start with a land bridge to Kaliningrad, which is part of it, which is historically part of Prussia. It's now part of Russia, but not connected by land. So he'll want a land bridge, and that will require the reconquest of Lithuania, 
which is a NATO member, and we do have a treaty obligation to defend a NATO member. So unless we think through all that, I think it's kind of dangerous, not to mention kind of um, <laughs> this shameful, if we get just say get tired and say, look, we gave them a few billion dollars and we gave them some weapons and we did our best, but what are you going to do? Uh, I, I think it's time to to move to move on, and we and, and we get trapped, as you say, by this midway uh, measures trap. I'll let you. I'll let you <laughs> reflect on some. Yeah, of this. I, mean, I I I don't. I there's some stuff that you just said that I might quibble with a little bit, but on the basic point uh, of, of a commitment to preserve a uh, an independent Ukraine, both a moral and a uh, a commitment and also a commitment that is related to our to our interests. I, I, I don't quibble with you on, on that. I, I was uh, I, I was simply in my op-ed and in what I just said, I was just trying to describe, I think, a process that affects our interventions, our international interventions in general, and that one that we that we need to be aware of. Um, uh, you know, even just as, a, as a, in an academic sense, uh, to understand the nature of these interventions, that uh, that there is this phenomenon, there is this process uh, that uh, kind of reveals itself over a certain amount of time. That I give the name "midway measures trap" too, but that doesn't mean that I think uh, uh, we should not have. Uh, done what we've done on Ukraine or that we shouldn't continue to provide the Ukrainians with, uh, with as much weaponry as we possibly can to enable them not not only to prevent the Russians from making further gains, but from pushing the Russians back from some of the gains that they already have made. I mean, Kherson, for example. Uh, uh, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what the end uh, would be. I have a feeling that it's going to be a little bit like a Korean solution uh, where we end up with the status quo ante, uh, which is not an entirely satisfactory Status quo ante, situation. February 24th, you mean, not just, yeah, right, just so we're clear. On that. Yeah, Another right, way. exactly. They, yeah, Russia yeah, keeps Crimea, Russia keeps Donbass probably, but but maybe not too much more than that. No, I, I, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, I want to make yeah. it clear. Uh, you know, that would be, uh, that, that, that isn't a, 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 an end game that's been specified by the administration, but I think it's probably a reasonable, a reasonable end game. I mean, I don't think that we're going to provide the Ukrainians with the wherewithal to retake Crimea. Uh, unfortunately, uh, we can't do that. I mean, we have to accept, I think, that the Russians control Crimea and that that's, uh, you know, that's, that's going to, be the case for the foreseeable future, but um, but you know what the Russians have taken since the invasion of February twenty fourth. I think it's reasonable to you know to to give the the Ukrainians the wherewithal to take to take some of that back anyway, and to and to have a a viable country called Ukraine, which is independent and free of of Russian control and that can run its own that can run its own affairs. And I completely agree with you also on you know this question of a vital interest always crops up. Uh, you know, um, what exactly is our vital interest? Uh, one of our vital interests, I think, is to live in a world where a Putin-like aggression doesn't succeed. Um, I know that there's a, there's a little bit of, there's a touch of sentimentality in that, uh, you know, sort of uh, wanting 
the bad guys to lose and the good guys to win. Uh, and that maybe the real world doesn't always allow for that kind of uh, outcome. But we do want to, I mean, even aside from your concerns that Putin might be emboldened to, to move on from Ukraine, there's, I would quibble with you a little bit with that. I think one of the lessons that Putin has probably learned from this is that he can't move on from Ukraine, uh, at least not in any kind of foreseeable future. I mean, he has threatened Lithuania specifically recently, although it may be a bluff. That may, I mean, he can threaten yeah. anybody, obviously. Yeah. You know, he's also threatened to use nuclear weapons. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, he makes he's he makes threats. Uh, he tries to intimidate us. Uh, he tries to, you know, make us worry that uh, we've taken on, you know, more than we can deal with. And, <clears throat> I mean, you know, but one of the factors in it, speaking of taking on more than we can deal with, you know, I mean, I think one of the things, all of our interventions since World War II, even including Korea and Vietnam, were discretionary interventions. I mean, you could argue that our vital interests, our survival, even our economic well-being was not really at stake uh, in any of these interventions. And what that means is that, that the enemy, that, that the, the issue at stake was more important to the enemy than it was to us. Uh, I mean, not allowing a Korean unification under a pro-Western government was more important to the Chinese, not to mention the North Koreans, than it was to us. And so we ended up in this kind of unsatisfactory middle ground, a divided country, Kim, jo uh, uh, Kim Il-sung, who, who uh, committed the aggression against the South, remained in power in North Korea. There was no punishment of North Korea, and they, you know, they kept their country intact and South Korea kept its country intact as well. Not a satisfactory outcome, but maybe under the circumstances, the best we could we could hope for. The uh, you know certainly Afghanistan uh, was uh, a pro-Western democratic government in Afghanistan, which was our goal. They're really uh, essential to American security and to American national interests. Uh, we, you know, the Taliban, it was, it was more important to the Taliban to win in Afghanistan than it was to us. And that's one of the factors in the Midway Measures uh, trap. Ukraine, I think, is a somewhat different situation because the Ukrainians have made it very, very clear that they are willing to fight and to make the sacrifices to, to defend themselves. And it is very important to them. But ultimately, Ukraine is more important to the Russians than it is to us. And what that means in terms of, of Putin's willingness to keep plugging away, fighting this war of attrition uh, over months and years until, until he wins, and until the United States decides, we just can't afford this anymore. It started out as five billion, and then it was up to 40 billion, and now it's 80 billion, and now it's 100 billion. Um, how long will it go on? And, and, and in that sense, you know, I, I do worry that the midway measures trap might might come into play. I think so. I think so. And I think, look, I think the larger issue, which is hard to, I think, get our hands around sometime, is who's going to shape the world of the 21st century? Is it going to be free nations or is it going to be 
totalitarian nations. And if, uh, you know, Hong Kong was, was, was free, not entirely democratic, and that freedom has been wiped out. And Afghanistan, it was a place where at least we wouldn't let the Taliban win. We would frustrate their ambitions. Um, when Kerry came into office, not a single urban center was under Taliban control. They were relegated to the countryside. With 5,000 troops, a very small number, and maybe 5,000 NATO troops or 10,000, which we which was a, we could we could maintain that status quo ante. The urban centers would be places where there would be freedoms, there's some democracy, um, limited but growing. Again, North, South Korea was not a democratic country when we saved it. Um, Taiwan was not a democratic country when we early on. It developed that way over time. Uh, women, Kabul could wear a hijab or not wear a hijab, they could go to school, they could study, all that was the case. But you lose in Hong Kong, you lose in Afghanistan, you lose in uh, Ukraine. At a certain point, there's a pattern, and the pattern becomes clear. As uh, we talked about, China takes over the architecture of the international system at the UN without a whole lot of pushback. Russia does to an extent as well. We see increasingly anti-American governments in Latin America. We see Chinese neo-imperialism in Africa. There's a pattern here that I think is it, it, it needs to be worried about. And um, and our the various leaders of this country and of Europe, I'm not sure quite see it. You know, I'm I'm, I'm reminded 2014. I sort of referred to this when John Kerry, as Secretary of State, responded to Putin's takeover of Crimea. Uh, and he said, you just don't, in the 21st century, behave in 19th century fashion by invading another country on a completely trumped up pretext. Well, of course, you do if no one is going to stop you. You don't just because you say, oh, my gosh, I didn't look at my calendar. This is not the 19th century. It's the 21st century. No, at the so-called international community, which is not a community at all, doesn't do anything. If the U.S. doesn't do anything, well, these are the countries, these are the, who are going to shape the future. And maybe we continue to exist as a little island of freedom and, you know, and, uh, and, and democracy, kind of the way the Eastern Roman Empire continued to exist for a thousand years in Constantinople today, in Istanbul, after the Western Roman Empire had been overrun, um, one might say, by uh, had been overrun by very, very different types. But that's that's not the future I want for my for my kids. If and I, but I'm not sure people get this, but I think it's I think it's worth bringing up. Yeah, no, I I, I feel that way as well. Uh, um, you know, I'm just also, you know, there's the counter argument that that we have to be aware of. And, and you know, we have to think about things um, on Afghanistan, for example. I was kind of torn, to tell you the truth, about I mean, I wasn't torn about the manner of the of withdrawal. It was it was horribly bungled uh, and caused terrible suffering that was unnecessary. But the principle of uh, after 20 years of getting out. I mean, you know, the argument there was, well, we could put in 5,000 troops. After all, um, there have hardly been any American casualties over the last several years in Afghanistan. But that was also partially because we were negotiating with the Taliban. We were negotiating our departure. And part of the understanding we have with the Taliban was that they wouldn't attack us uh, while those negotiations were taking place. They assumed that they were going to 
end up in an American withdrawal. And so they were willing not to attack American forces during that time. If we had abandoned the plan of the withdrawal, uh, then the Taliban would have begun applying military pressure and probably our casualties would have gone up. Uh, and then, you know, that would have triggered, you know, the usual phenomenon of a, you know, there would have been a lot of questioning. Do we really want to, is this worth the sacrifice? Is this really, uh, I mean, are we going to be losing, you know, an American soldier here and there for forever because of Taliban attacks? I mean, there are suicide attacks, um, you know, whatever, again, because it was going to be always more important for the Taliban to win in Afghanistan than it was going to be for us. So I'm, I'm not sure. I, I, like I say, I'm torn. Uh, I, I have the benefit of, of, of being a kind of an armchair philosopher here. I'm not responsible for what happens. Uh, I'm not the policymaker who's going to face the public with the consequences of a decision. So I kind of, you know, in a way, I have the luxury of, of, of being ambivalent or, or being uncertain about what the right thing to do would be. Now, I'll just mention this briefly because our military center, Brad Bowman, has talked about this a lot. There's such a thing as the economy of force. And the U.S., one thing the U.S. has gotten very good at is being, um, is helping uh, allies as proxies to, to succeed. But they need us in order to they need our intelligence, our logistics, our air support. So the, the particularly the Afghan army was not doing badly against the Taliban. They weren't defeating it, but they were they were frustrating its ambitions. And we were and by supporting them, we they needed our support. And once we withdrew our support, they of course fell apart. So if you want to get out of Afghanistan, you would need to do it over about a two two year period, and you probably need to have trainers and others stay there for a long time. The same was true in Iraq. Even I mean, Hillary Clinton told Obama, "We need to have a residual force there of at least ten thousand troops for again for training, for being honest brokers, for keeping their special forces." We don't even need to necessarily go with them on missions. Sometimes we do, but we could do that. We're doing it right now with a very small force in in Syria. Which is which is holding down the Islamic State from resurging and keeping Iran from forming a land bridge. These are low intensity but long term uh, conflicts with small numbers of the U.S. allowing our our uh, allies and maybe one might say proxies to succeed. Um, if that is the the the, the alternative to w- defeat and withdrawal. Um, I, I think I would be in favor of it. Also in Afghanistan, we had a Bagram Air Base. If we want to pivot to Asia, well, Bagram Air Base is a tremendously useful, would be a useful asset for us to have. And we just threw it away along with billions of dollars of, of equipment. But that brings me to something I wanted to do. I wanted to come back to what you said. Back in 1997, you and Ross Monroe, uh, as you mentioned, you wrote a book that was well, the coming conflict with China, and you really, you, you argued, really, you predicted that conflict between the U.S. and the People's Republic, Communist China, would dominate the early decades of the 21st century. And you advocated various steps to counter uh, the Chinese threat to the U.S. It was pretty damn controversial at the time, but I think it's absolutely clear you and Russ Monroe were absolutely spot on correct. 
Well, thank you for remembering. Yes, I, I, I <laughs> you belong to a you belong to a, a, a distinguished but lamentably small uh, <laughs> a club of people who, uh, who who remember that that book. But yeah, I, I, I'll be you know perfectly immodestly frank. I you know I think I think we got it right uh, at a time when when uh, the the consensus was that we were uh, panicky. Uh, and um, I don't know what's the word. Uh, uh, excessively pessimistic about the relationship. I mean, it was a time when the political leaders, uh, from you know Clinton on down, were saying that a kind of political liberalization in China is inevitable. Uh, we're bringing them into the international community. We're uh, we're trading with them. We're building all kinds of relationships, uh, students and universities and, uh, uh, you know, all kinds of contacts and conversations are taking place. Plus, you know, the, the interest of the Chinese and in, in a system that's, you know, that's making them rich. Mm-hmm. And all and of this, they, is gonna, if they come rich, they'll want to be moderate. Yeah. All this is going to produce a, 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 a China that behaves well. Uh, you know the, the peaceful rise. It was it was called um, uh, China as a uh, a responsible uh, participant in the international system. And you know, again, I thought that was wrong, but I also thought maybe I'm wrong. Uh, maybe Ross and I are wrong. Uh, uh, I I wasn't a hundred percent sure <laughs> that this prediction was going to turn out to be true. Uh, but it did, uh, and the reasons that we thought it would would happen is because of the the will to power, the the nature of uh, of dictatorial regimes, the nature of the Chinese Communist Party, uh, the 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 larger ambition of the rising state uh, to challenge the uh, authority and the power of the status quo power. You know the you know the Thucydides trap kind of thing. Um, and, um, you know, I just thought it was, and, and, and also I thought, you know, going back to some of the stuff we were talking about earlier, I thought that there was a, a tendency, I, I called it the pandaization of China, you know, the panda being kind of a symbol, you know, the, the cozy, cute, adorable symbol of China that we, t- we tended, you know, even way back in the Cold War, we tended to pandaize China to see it as somehow kind of inoffensive and, um, uh, yeah, they had their own sort of peculiar ways, chopsticks and stuff like that. But but that basically they were they were not threatening. There may have even been a little bit of a racist component in that. I'm not sure. Uh, I wouldn't want to stress that. Uh, and but you know, but in fact, the Chinese Communist Party belongs to to you know the the mainstream totalitarian movements of the 20th century. It's the only major survival. Uh, you know, uh, of those of that movement, uh, fascism and communism, and that it was bound by its very nature to be unfriendly to American values and to American interests. And yeah, it is. yeah. And, well, and your book opens with a quotation from a from a Chinese general, Mi Jingyu. Uh, he said, "As the United States, for a relatively long time, it will be absolutely necessary." that we quietly nurse our sense of vengeance. 
we must conceal our abilities and bide our time. Vengeance. Vengeance for what? China's rules also blame the U.S. for the student demonstrations prior to the Tiananmen Square massacre. In other words, they blame the U.S. for these terrible ideas about freedom and liberalism and all that that we had infected them with. And by the way, one more point, you and Ross Monroe also, as I remember, opposed China being allowed to join the World Trade Organization as a developing nation, a status I believe it maintains to this very day. Yes, that's right, it does. And we also, uh, we, we, we advocated uh, um, economic retaliatory measures like tariffs and stuff like that, uh, that um, you know, we only got with the Trump administration finally. Um, and you know, the Biden administration has kept them in place. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not pessimistic on, on China. I mean, I don't think that a China-dominated world is, is at all inevitable. Uh, um, uh, you know, I think to some degree, China is running into a lot of its own domestic problems. Uh, believe it or not, in a country that size, they have a serious labor shortage. Uh, they pursued this one-child policy for uh, 30 years or almost 40 years. It's turned out to be a demographic disaster for the Chinese um, uh, there's a kind of natural counterbalance that's emerging, uh, and that we saw, I think we saw evidence of that in the, uh, the G7 and the, uh, NATO meetings with, you know, Australia, Japan, and South Korea attending. Um, I mean, China is going to be a big influential country indefinitely. I mean, it's, it always has been historically, uh, there are many periods lasting for centuries when China was probably the, the, the richest and most powerful country in the world. Uh, I, I don't know that it's going to be the richest and most powerful country in the world in the future, but it's going to be, it's going to be there. It's not going anyplace. And we have to figure out a way of dealing with it. And, you know, and the old balance of power idea, bringing together, your, uh, you know, uh, the people who have an interest in limiting Chinese power into a kind of formal or informal alliance uh, I think, you know, I think that's happening uh, right now. Um, you know, that does, again, like I said, I hope I'm not repeating myself, either, you know, but, um, you know, the, the South China Sea is going to continue to be an issue. The Chinese are not going to give up their man-made islands. We're probably not going to use military force to kick them off of those man-made islands, but we'll continue to run our freedom of uh, navigation operations. Uh, the British have been doing it also, the French now. Uh, Australia is buying, uh, you know, the new nuclear subs. Uh, the Japanese are considering, uh, you know, a constitutional amendment, which would allow them to, you know, um, exert power beyond their borders. Um, uh, of course, the key issue there, the, the immediate issue is Taiwan. Uh, and, um, you know, this is also an issue that the Chinese are never going to give up on their willingness to, their, their eagerness, their desire to reincorporate Chinese into their control. Um, but I don't think it's ever going to be easy for them. And I see, I see a way to continue to make it so costly and so difficult for them that they'll never actually make that, that gesture in a military way. I mean, here's, the, here's a, what I see as a, a bit of a, a, a paradox. I think Xi Jinping obviously wants to take to Taiwan, and um, the sooner the better. Um, but he doesn't want to fail in that mission. That would be dangerous for him. Uh, at the same time, one lesson 
that should be coming out of Ukraine is you need to you need to make the you you should we should have made the Ukraine and now should make Taiwan into what people in this community calling a porcupine. Difficult for a predator to digest. That means pouring um, lots of weaponry in there to make it harder for the Chinese to succeed in an amphibious landing or to to crush uh, Taiwan and to and conquer it. Uh, but if he sees that as coming up soon, he might also think, well, then the sooner the better, because it's going to get stronger and harder to, for me to, to digest. So I better move on it. So there's all, and I can't say I, I'm, I'm not smart to figure out how he comes out as he, as he tries to think these things through. And again, the other point I'm making is we should, instead of saying, oh, let's not provoke Putin, after 2014, we should have been doing everything we could to have enough weaponry sold, not even given, to Ukraine. So when Putin looked at it, he thought, I'd like to take them over, but oh my gosh, I don't think I, you know, this is going to be too tough and too bloody. They've got, look at what they have at the, in their arsenal. Anyhow, I throw that out. Yeah. Well, I, I, I mean, I agree. I, I, uh, I think that the that the period of maximum danger on Taiwan is now, and then the and then in the near future over the next few years. Uh, I can't imagine. I mean, Xi Jinping wants the glory of uh, the final step in Chinese rejuvenation, in which you know, and the, the key and, and still un. Uh, unachieved aspect of that is uh, is taking over Taiwan. Uh, so you know, if if it turns out in six months from now the Chinese launch a massive amphibian invasion, I'll be a little bit surprised. I don't think it's going to happen, but it might happen. I mean, I would give it a ten percent ten percent chance. And and uh, you know, I think, like I say, I think the world is becoming more and more aware of the China threat. And uh, we are slowly, clumsily adapting to it. I wish that uh, it didn't become part of the Republican-Democratic consensus that the Trans-Pacific Partnership was not a good deal. Uh, I, think we, I, think, I think we should have stuck with it. I, I'm sorry that the Trump administration pulled out of it, but it was part of uh, the Trumpian shtick, you know, that international trade agreements are bad for American workers and that uh, we, we can't engage in them, whether it's NAFTA or uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership. Um, I think it was a good deal, and it was a, it would have been a major step in creating that kind of counterbalance to China. But at the same time, we're finding alternative ways of, of doing that. Um, so, you know, I, I think we have every, there's every reason to hope that China will not achieve its ambition of becoming an agent hegemon uh, whose wishes have to be deferred to by all the other countries of the region and, and, and by us. Uh, fi- all right, final subject, just a few minutes, uh, you get your thoughts. In 1990, you wrote a book called Fragile Glory, A Portrait of France and the French. And I'm just curious to have you say a few words. 30 years later, how, what's your view of France? How much has it changed? How do you, what, what do you see there? I wrote a piece actually a few months ago you know, in a lot of ways that the French are going through some, somewhat similar to what we're going through, uh, challenges to the, the French national identity. Uh, and I remember when I lived in France, in, when I was the Times correspondent in France in the mid-80s, 84 to 88, 
um, the major issue was immigration uh, and that it was absolutely, uh, you know, uh, decent people uh, did not question immigration or the possibility of a, of a Muslim influence that would, that would be bad for the country. I was there again uh, last November uh, and, and two years, about three years before I was there in uh, 2018, um, writing a piece about how the concern about Islamization and, uh, and Muslim immigration has gone mainstream in France and that everybody except the far left uh, is concerned about it as a threat to the to the French national identity and the French and the Fr French values and the French way of life, and this is the you know this is the issue that is going to be fought out in France now over the next well indefinite uh, indefinite period. I, I think that the forces of assimilation uh, you know will predominate over the forces of the French call it communitarisme, uh, you know, sort of, um, it's their word for identity politics, uh, uh, the, the, the creation of, uh, of separate incompa incompatible large communities that can no longer agree on what the nation is, what the state is, and what its values are, and what its practices ought to be. Uh, those are the two alternatives I, I'm sort of, vaguely optimistic that the assimilationist option will will eventually prevail. I don't think that among Muslims uh, there's a strong desire for uh, radical Islam to prevail in France. Uh, there is a fairly strong trend in that direction and uh, you know people are worried about it. I, I, when I was there actually I, I, I met a, a group of uh, Muslim women, in one of the suburbs north of Paris uh, that were organizing exactly to combat uh, Islamization, what they call Islamization, for example, to combat uh, pressure on girls to wear, to wear the, uh, you know, the Muslim headdress in schools, uh, pressure the, 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 the Muslim uh, uh, radicals want, for example, to have separate, you know, Seems like a small issue, but symbolically, it's a fairly important one in, in the region that the municipal swimming pools have separate times for boys and girls so that boys and girls aren't swimming in the pool together at the same time. Uh, so this group was fighting against that. Uh, they were protecting women uh, from domestic abuse. Um, and they were all Muslims from North Africa. Uh, and they believe they, they regarded themselves as French. They believed in uh, in French values and uh, the you know the separation of church and state. Laïcité, laïcité, as it's called. Um, so you know, I, I I took hope from 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 that my encounter with these very brave, very forceful Muslim North African immigrant women, or or the children of immigrants, and uh, and you know in the in the suburb of. of Paris that's most heavily Muslim in population. Well, on that optimistic note, we'll conclude this conversation. But uh, Richard, it's always uh, it's a pleasure to catch up with you a little bit. Always interesting to talk with you. Um, great that I'm still in touch with you after all these years. So thank you for being on this edition of Foreign Policy. Well, my pleasure, Clifford. Thanks for having me. 
Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpodicy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.